and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Uh, We want to start off today by thanking all of you for all of the wonderful comments that you uh, shared with us about our last episode on online teaching. Um, And we'd like to encourage you, if you are noticing things, for those of you who are teaching, if you are noticing things uh, in your teaching that you think might be useful for the Juice and Squeeze family to hear, um, we'd love to get more emails and uh, and messages on Twitter um, about those. And we'll do a a follow-up in a while that is, you know, sharing what has and hasn't been working for everyone and other kinds of tips and tricks. So, Julia, I have a totally unrelated topic that actually may be related to online teaching as and as we're doing course prep, and that topic is cocktails. Mm-hmm. And and nice I segue. I, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked a lot. I worked a lot on that. Um, and let me tell you my motivation for this. Uh, and and I also just have like in my heart, I feel like you will have at least one thing to to contribute. So I'm trusting you to come through for me. Mm. Um. We went peach picking uh, this week, uh, and in this part of the country, I, I don't know about elsewhere, but like peaches are almost out of season, but we got a whole bunch of fresh peaches, and, uh, and then lots of things you can do with peaches, like make pies or cobblers or or just eat them, but you can also make cocktails with peach. And so uh, I discovered a cocktail, um, it's a bourbon peach smash um, from Spitten Kitchen. And uh, I, we don't talk as much about cooking as we should, um, but basically anytime we talk about anything that's a recipe, I would just like be like, well, look on Smitten Kitchen and see what Deb has to say. So I have mm-hmm. to say, uh, uh, you know, recommendation, I've never had a bad recipe from Smitten Kitchen. There's probably one on there. Uh, I've never, I haven't found it. I've never had a bad one. Sometimes they take a while. But uh, anyway, I highly recommend pretty much everything Deb does. And we have... I think two of her cookbooks and obviously the website. So I will put a link to the bourbon peach smash in our uh, show notes, which will be at juiceandsqueeze.net slash 27, because this is our 27th episode. Um, the, but the thing about this that I wanted to ask you about that I um, basically, because of this recipe, I learned what a shrub is. Mm. Do you know what a shrub is? I, I do. One of the joys of having a, of having Violet Brown live with me mm-hmm. is uh, who is an incredible bartender and does amazing things with food and drinks. Uh, yeah, we've been drinking a lot of shrubs. Why, uh-huh. uh, why don't you share with the audience? Well, appar- apparently, uh, well, you, I'll probably get this wrong. And I've, I've had shrubs before, but I just thought it was like, well, there's like someone put a, um, <laughs> someone put a, a plant in my drink, and so we're going to call it a shrub. <laughs> but actually, um, shrub uh, comes from um, drinks that have a vinegared syrup in there. And so in, in this case, what you do is you mix, uh, you basically do a simple syrup with, with sugar and water and vinegar with some sliced peaches and let that sit for a while, and that becomes the, the base of the bourbon cocktail. And actually, I, I wouldn't have guessed to put bourbon with peach, but it works, it works great. And so... Believe it. Yes. So anyway, you can also just drink bourbon apparently, but uh, we don't, I mean, sorry. <laughs> I, what I was going to say was you can also just drink vinegar, but I don't recommend it. But apparently it was a Freudian slip because actually, yes, you can also just drink bourbon. <laughs> uh, yeah, shrubs are delicious. It's a way of like fancying up your uh, your bubble water in a way that seems really healthy. I don't know if it's vinegar. I just feel like it's somehow good for me. That is not science advice. That is just, it just feels like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a good refreshing summer drink. Yeah, yep. 
And, and, and according um, to Wikipedia, they yeah. were popular during America's colonial era. Oh. I don't know why. Maybe did, did the vinegar kill the stuff in your water? But I, if it's bourbon anyway, who cares? I don't know. Anyway, that's, that so sounds, we can pretend we're right, being yeah. historically accurate. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that we have gotten into this summer, in addition to making shrubs and delicious cocktails. Oh, man. Violet made a, a vodka infused with donuts the other day. It was wild. It sounds ridiculous. It does sound she ridiculous. Also made, she also made ice cubes out of the water that we uh, we we made bagels, and she made water out of the ice cubes that we boiled the bagels in, and then made a bagel themed cocktail. But just so that you don't think she only makes things out of out of baked goods, she also recently made uh, a pine nut milk that can go in cocktails, um, and then just does incredible things with citrus and rum and Mm -hmm. yeah but the other thing that we have really gotten into this summer um is making uh unidirectional ice so you know normally when you make ice in your freezer it's all kind of like cloudy and white and apparently the reason for that is that all of the impurities and little bubbles and things in the water as the ice freezes from the outside in all of that stuff gets pushed to the inside and so all of those impurities minerals whatever like become trapped in the ice and are visible and make it cloudy. But if you freeze ice in such a way that it only freezes from one direction, then all of those impurities, all that junk just gets pushed in the direction away from the cold source. And so the top of the ice is like beautiful and pristine and clear. Mm-hmm. So we take, um, we have a chest freezer in the basement and we take a little like cooler and fill the cooler up with water and then put the cooler in the chest freezer. And because it's insulated all the way around, it means the cold is only coming from the top. Mm-hmm. And then you dump it out after like 24 hours before it's frozen solid so that there's still water with the minerals and the sediment and whatever junk at the bottom. But the top is just a layer of like, perfectly crystal clear like like glacier water mm-hmm. and it's gorgeous and it's a real uh, a real fun way to kind of like elevate a cocktail or a shrub or even just a glass of water mm-hmm. uh I, I never knew ice could be fancy mm-hmm. but it's a it's a real nice way of um making making things cold and fancy simultaneously so so my present to myself when i got tenure uh, was a $25 um, doohickey that makes clear ice spheres using using the same principle that you just said. And it's a little bit clunky. I will link to it in the show notes. Um, but basically, it's it's a, it's a it's a sphere mold, but in a way that pushes the impurities down. So so I think I think um, the best way to make a clear ice sphere is you do. You, you buy it commercially or you do what you said and get a big hunk of ice and then chisel out a sphere that's perfectly clear. But if you're a little bit lazy like me, you can get one of these and it's sort of like 90% clear, uh, and it easier. And so I will also put this in the, in the show notes. And, and I can tell you if, uh, listener, uh, if you're really interested in this, you can go down a very long rabbit hole of, uh, internet pages telling you how to make clear ice, but they all basically bo- boil down to like, Buy it commercially, which no one will do, or unidirectional freezing and and some version of that. Mm-hmm. It is a very silly thing. I am not uh, yes. just like, like, <laughs> right. hear, hearing ourselves through others being like, this is a very silly thing. And, you know, 
when we are trapped at home, these, these little things, you know, we, we all need a hobby of some sort. Uh, and mm-hmm. if clear ice is your hobby, then, uh, you know, there are worse ones to pick. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Be- oh, so, All right, so oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, segue to more serious topics. Um, so, we uh, talked a couple of episodes ago about applying for uh, faculty jobs at um, SLACs, small liberal arts colleges, and got a lot of um, thanks for all your feedback on that. That was really useful. Um, why not? We're on a job kick. What about applying for postdocs? Um, Julie and I both get questions about this from time to time. And so um, this is not going to be, this is not going to answer all of your questions by any means, but this is a postdoc centric episode. Uh, And I would say, even if you are not applying for a postdoc because it's too far in your future or too far in your past, um, we'd also appreciate your feedback on like, uh, you know, when you get asked a question, what about applying for postdocs? What what do you tell people? Uh, Because we might be missing something. So what's a postdoc? Well, that's a good question. And I can tell you, um, when I started graduate school, I did not know. So I actually, I I have this vague memory, which I'm pretty sure is a real memory and not made up, of sometime during my first year of graduate school, being in my advisor's office, and he mentioned something about a postdoc. And and I thought, what? Like, I'm getting my PhD, and that's my my graduate school training, and then then I'm a professor, right? Um, uh-huh. And so I had no idea about a postdoc. Uh, turns out these are not a new invention. So postdoctoral fellowship in sort of what we do is uh, some additional training after your PhD, uh, typically in a different lab. And we can talk about that and typically to learn some new skill that you didn't get during your PhD. So I, when I first heard about postdocs, I thought it was a little bit silly because I've already been in school for X number of years, and then my PhD is another Y number of years, and then I have to get more training. Um, You know, (laughs) it seems kind of ridiculous, and it is kind of ridiculous. On the other hand, I also do remember, uh, for me, when I finished my PhD, I thought, uh, I'm not ready to be a faculty member. I There's a lot, I I learned a lot, but there's a lot I don't know, and so I was um, actually pretty happy to to get additional training. Um, for me, so, so for me, I, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. So I, uh, wanted to study, um, how the brain understands language and speech. And my PhD had mostly been, um, a lot of neuroscience coursework, but my like human, uh, data was all behavioral. And so I really wanted to learn brain, human brain imaging during my postdoc. And so that was a really clear thing that I didn't know, wanted to know. And I thought a postdoc would, um, would help me get there. Uh, uh, you know, side note, I also did seven years of postdocs, which is probably longer than most people. And so I don't, you know, this, I I can share my experience. I'm not telling anyone they should do that. Um, but I also learned a lot over those seven years and it was super useful. So that was my motivation. Um, Mm -hmm. but people have different, you know, there's lots of different reasons to do a postdoc. Yeah, but it sounds like um, uh, trying to gain a new skill or get familiar with a new technology or get exposed to some other new approach of doing research is is a is a one is a, a reason for doing postdocs that I hear pretty commonly. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to continue to enhance your training and give you opportunities that you didn't have during your PhD. Right. Well, there's sort of like um, I think there's like you know practical strategic reasons, and then there's more like theoretical reasons, right? So like mm-hmm. like theoretically, uh, w- you know. 
it probably is beneficial to get exposed to to more to more research, more different points of view, different techniques, because it will make you a more well-rounded uh, person in the long term. Um, strategically, it's a chance to get more papers out, um, which, you know, maybe that shouldn't matter, but it, it kind of still does matter. And so if you're writing up papers from your PhD, you can now get them published. You might be able to get a new paper out of your postdoc. I mean, these are all relevant things when you're trying to compete on the job market. And so, um, yeah. So anyways, I think, I think that there are reasons why this has persisted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can think of two other reasons. Uh, one is that in addition to like learning techniques and learning, you know, kind of content stuff, um, it's another opportunity to see another lab and see how another lab works. So one of the, one of the really kind of big eye openers for me is that my PhD lab and my postdoc lab um, were just set up very differently. Like the actual physical lab space. Mm-hmm. And so that affected how people interacted, um, the size of the lab, the way that people kind of rotated in and out, um, the way that my PIs uh, kept track of who was doing what and arranged lab meetings and, you know, scheduled things, um, interacted with their students. All those things were really, were really different in the two labs. And so that was really instructive to me because then when I started my own lab, it kind of helped me to realize that there are lots of different ways of doing this. And I could, you know, kind of take what worked for me in both of those situations. I mean, I think it's kind of like logistical stuff too. mm -hmm. I I think it's so, uh, I think it's it's totally natural that we sort of like imprint in many ways on our PhD lab, because Mm -hmm. for many of us, that was sort of our our first immersive research experience. And, uh, and we spent a lot of years there. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's natural to kind of think that's the way that things kind of quote unquote are done for better or for mm-hmm, worse. Right. right. And so right. I think it's really, I mean, I, I still tend to gravitate towards how things were done in my PhD lab, but I had experience in three other labs um, through postdocs and, and it, and actually all of those have been like really formative in how I try to structure my own lab um, at the very least, just teaching me that there are multiple ways to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And not that you have to do a postdoc to realize there are multiple ways to do things, but sort of, you know, lived experience can be more powerful than someone just telling you that, right? I also found that when I was, especially kind of at the tail end of my postdoc, I was being more mindful of how my PI was running the lab, mm-hmm. right? When I was when I was in grad school, I was just like, got to get this, you know, got to figure out my research, got to keep my head above water got to get these papers out. And I wasn't saying, oh, I wonder why he's decided to do it this way. And I wonder, you know, like I wasn't thinking about my PI's mentorship style or things Mm -hmm. like that. But when I was in my postdoc and I was like, then in a position to be thinking about having a faculty job, I was like, oh, I wonder why he's making these decisions that he is and so Mm -hmm. forth. So, um, so I think, you know, just being in a different headspace can make you look at it differently too. You know, there's another aspect to this, which is, uh, and to a certain extent, you know, with all the with all the normal caveats that the grass is always greener and that memory can be clouded and and things like that. Um, many faculty members, if you ask them, I'm sure not all, but but will say things wistfully like, "Oh, I remember being a postdoc. That was so great." Uh, and, and and I say that too. Now, you know, full disclosure, I went through lots of hard periods as a postdoc. That if you asked me. You know, how great is life from one to 10? It, it would not have been a 10. Um, but I think the thing that, the things that, um, I'm, I'm, what's the word? Uh, 
nostalgic for um, are, are, are the lack of administrative responsibilities. And so in the moment of, of being a postdoc, I was not aware of that at all. I'm like, I got to show up and do my, do my work. But now I, I think, well, I wish I had a whole day to like sit at, at my computer and program uh, because I don't have that opportunity anymore. And so even though at the time it was super frustrating, I also sort of like look back on it fondly. Right. Like, even though I was like banging my head against a wall and super frustrated, like that almost seems I actually kind of miss that, you know, because of the whole gestalt of the experience. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I do think that there are just having dedicated time for for research is also really valuable. And I think, you know, it's kind of a sweet spot where you've learned enough to be productive and be independent. But you also haven't reached the point where you're doing a lot of non-research things. So anyway, yeah. I, I think there are there are advantages. I'm sure there are, you know, also disadvantages. And I don't know how long, how many postdocs you should do, and how long you should do them for. But uh, but there are definite advantages. Mm-hmm. One one other kind of practical advantage is that um, you you finish your PhD at like one set point in time, and so if you go straight from PhD to the mark to the job market. Um, uh, that's like the only job market cycle that you have access to. But postdocs are often more kind of flexible in time. So, you know, you could get funding for, if you get funding for three years, you could start applying for jobs after this, for after the second year. And if things don't go well, you do the third year of the postdoc, but then you have access to kind of another, another year of the market. So that added flexibility can be helpful too. Mm-hmm. Um, also for people who are choosing to not go on the academic job market, um, doing a postdoc is um, an opportunity where you are still in the academic setting that you know well and gives you kind of more time to explore and think about what the other options are outside of academia. Well, and the other thing is um, kind of relatedly, so when you go from a grad student to a postdoc, you get a big raise, typically, mm-hmm. in every case that mm-hmm. I'm aware of. And so and so rather than drag out your PhD, um, I shouldn't say drag out, but I mean, there, there might be advantages to transitioning to a postdoc sooner rather than later, if only because you get paid more to do mm-hmm. things you're already doing. That's also the benefit of transitioning from a, from a postdoc to a faculty position right. sooner. Right. Too. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That one I didn't do, but the, the postdoc part I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Julia, what was your postdoc um, transition like? Yeah, so um, I uh, we talked about this some episodes ago about kind of the, the, the path that I took. I'll do the very very condensed version here, which is that I um, thought that I was going to quit grad school after two years of grad school. Then I thought I was going to quit as soon as I finished my PhD. Um, I mean, like leave academia and never look back. Um, and then as I was getting ready to finish my PhD, um, I got offered a, a, a great postdoc position that I was really excited about um, for for one year. And so I said, okay. I'll do it for one year and then I'll quit academia. Um, and so I um, I realize now that getting offered this position and kind of going into it the way that I did was really an, an incredible case of privilege um, because I didn't like go looking hard for it and have to fill out a lot of applications and things. It was kind of a matter of um, having made a connection somewhat informally and then following through on that connection. Um, so it, so it really came, you know, from, from having a conversation with my later to become, um, postdoc PI, um, where we were just getting together to talk. He was going to be on my dissertation committee and we were just getting together to talk before my, my dissertation defense, um, and really hit it off and got super excited about talking about research together. And, you know, he offered me, offered me a position on the spot. 
And so I think that um, that process of of getting a postdoc is is very different than what um, what a, a lot of people do. And so um, at the time, I thought, what incredible luck! And now I'm thinking more about seeing things through a lens of the systematic privileges that uh, that that my race and many other things have afforded me. And now that story just reeks of white privilege to me. Mm-hmm. But there it is. That's how I got my postdoc. So, I mean, I think we'll, there's a topic I, I, I will come back to in a minute, uh, which is the dreaded F word, funding. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I know. Um, and, and so, you know, it, sometimes we don't like to talk about it, but uh, a lot of the um, strategy around around any job, but but in this case, postdocs, comes around where the money is going to come from. Uh, and so I think, anyway, we'll, we'll kind of come back to that, but I think the the availability of of you know, money for that position for him to be able to offer it to you. It was. It wasn't mm-hmm. only that 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 you hit it off and you were an, a, a good candidate. It was also that he had money to yeah. to you know to spend on you. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that that there's some luck involved in that, which which I'll mm-hmm. kind of come back to. So, um, it, so it, it, mm-hmm. one one of the things that uh, that that really kind of strikes me is that as you go from applying to undergrad to applying for grad schools to applying for postdocs, the system gets like less formalized mm-hmm. and less like explicit about how you're supposed to do it as you go right when you're applying to undergrad like you can buy a million books about like how to apply to undergrad and what schools you have to what schools you can get into with the right same grades and all of the deadlines are at exactly the same time so that you are you know very close so that when you're making your decision you know all the schools you got into and you can like make that decision very carefully right mm-hmm. and then when you go to grad school it's like well it's not just about the school it's also about the advisor and the fit and all of these things and and then when it's applying for postdocs it's just like who even knows there's just secret bags of money that people have mm-hmm. and some people have postdocs and some don't and how do you find them yep. um and so it seems like as the as the system gets less like uh you know explicitly described in writing um, it provides more and more opportunities for systematic privilege and systematic uh, uh, systematic discrimination to take hold, right? Because if you only know how to do these things because your advisor has taught you how to do them, then people whose advisors didn't teach them how to do them, you know, don't don't have access to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it is, you know, I, when when I have talked to people about applying for postdocs in the past or applying for, you know, even like. Uh, research assistantships and those kinds of things. Um, if there isn't like a portal where they're all listed and it's very clear how you get them, um, I think that that makes it really systematically tricky for some groups over others. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also, you know, um, as academics, you know, we as a group struggle with, you know, at, at what point are you a student and at what point are you a, an employee? Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into all the HR stuff there, but I think, you know, as undergraduates and graduate students, it's clear, like, you are a student. And then mm-hmm. as a postdoc, you're like, well, we don't really call you a student anymore, but, mm-hmm. like, you're also considered a trainee. And, like, in my experience, I for good reason, like, I think I was still training and still learning, but also I had a PhD and was contributing a lot. So it just it's a weird, nebulous area. And a lot of them are grant-funded, and because grants are um, – sort of unpredictable it means that postdoc funding is unpredictable so Mm -hmm. i you know maybe there's a better system out there there probably is but we don't have it yet so i think we should anyway so my goal is to try to help people understand how things are and then we can you know maybe maybe we'll get it better uh in the future Mm -hmm. yeah so my first postdoc was was also a postdoc of convenience um 
uh, we were staying in Boston. So I got my PhD at Brandeis University, uh, and we were sort of tied to the area uh, because my wife was also finishing up a, a master's degree there. So we didn't want to move. Uh, and I was looking for, you know, my goal was human brain imaging, but um, one of the professors at Brandeis, Larry Abbott, uh, who, who's fantastic, um, does computational neuroscience, and he had he had some funding. And I didn't really want to go that route, like wholeheartedly, but I also was ready to learn something new, and, and it kind of felt like it was time to move on. And so I joined Larry's lab um, for what was what was intended to be sort of like a stopover training. You know, that I was always planning doing another postdoc, um, but I was going to try to learn about computational neuroscience. And so I actually, I learned a ton in Larry's lab. I never got a paper out of it, which I still feel um, some guilt over. Sorry, Larry. Uh, I, I don't know that, I don't know that he cares, but I, you know, I kind of regret, regret that. But I, I learned a lot um, about neuroscience, but also about coding. So I did tons of, um, coding over those over that year and a half um which really kind of stuck with me so that was a really like tangible skill and then just thinking about sort of um networks of individual neurons and a theoretical approach uh as opposed to a you know i don't know my normal kind of cognitive psychology approach Mm -hmm. um during that time i was also applying to work with uh someone doing uh cognitive neuroscience in language Um, But there was no funding, so I had to get my own funding. So I was applying for fellowships um, to do that, and I didn't get any of them. Uh, And so then, uh, having not gotten those fellowships, I kind of reached out to people I knew. uh, And Murray Grossman, who was at Penn, who I had already been collaborating with, had some funding. And so Murray um, took me on. I moved to Philadelphia and worked at Penn for a couple of years, which, which I learned a lot during that time. I continued to apply for fellowships and continued to not get any fellowships. Um, so uh, these were uh, NSF, uh, Human Frontier Science Program, and NIH NRSA fellowships. Uh, so I kept not getting those. Uh, but then um, uh, Matt Davis, who I orig- eventually worked with, had got his own funding for a project which had a postdoc line. And so he publicly posted, uh, you know, I have a job opening, please apply, which I applied for and, and eventually got that job. Uh, and that's what moved us to, to Cambridge for a couple of years. Um, and then after a couple of years there, wanted to come back to the States for job market and family reasons. And so I, I came back and worked with Murray uh, again at Penn because, again, he had funding and I, I, I knew him and had reached out about sort of opportunities. So, I, I mean, of my kind of four postdocs, three were people that I knew from some other, they weren't strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, and, and Matt's uh, the one that I kind of applied to. Um, I had already, I had already met Matt and we sort of had, had exchanged, you know, anyway, we, we kind of knew each other briefly from conferences and things. And so, so none of them were sort of like out of the blue, I'm, I'm applying for, for a job. Um, so I don't know. So again, this is not like advice on like this is how you have to do it, but that was that was how it worked for me. And so I think my like my two takeaways when when talking to other people about postdocs are first uh, be aware of what the funding considerations are, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute. And then secondly, having a personal connection is probably not required, but can be really really helpful. And I think that also like relates to the funding. Mm-hmm. 
So before it's time to go on the market, how do you work on making those personal connections? Well, great question, Julia. So we, we did talk, we talked about this kind of in the, in the context of uh, like conferences way back in episode six, aggressively okay. friendly, which I think is worth, if people are interested, I think that's worth listening to. I think, uh, so maybe we could focus now on not conferences a little bit more. Um, I just like general advice. So a lot of science uh, does rely on social social interaction, social ties and knowing people. And so, so Julia really does not like the word networking. Uh, so I try, I try to avoid it, but it, it like the people that, you know, it does, it does help. And so you can think about that in like a depressing, like, oh, you have to be strategic and it's all about like privilege kind of mindset, which there's certainly some of that, but you can also think about it. I think um, that we're just humans and for humans, social networks matter. And so, so expanding your, the people that you know, and that, that you interact with is going to be uh, helpful kind of no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. So I would say, so first of all, when is it time, when is it time to think about a postdoc? It's never too early. And even if you literally have no idea what you want to do for a postdoc, or if you want to do a postdoc, um, I think expanding your scientific network, the people that you know, that you talk to about your work. Uh, is always beneficial. And, and so it happens to be beneficial for a postdoc, but there's no downside to doing that. So if you're a first year graduate student, um, in, in field X, you're probably not ready to like apply for a postdoc. I think that's a safe assumption, but, <laughs> but you heard it here first, gang. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, right. Can I, can I copyright that advice? Uh, uh, but I don't think it's too early to think about like, well, what are the other people doing interesting research in your field? Right. And, and can you sit in on a lab meeting? Like there are ways to sort of connect with other research groups that are not like super formal and don't put a lot of pressure on you. So you don't have to say, Oh, I have to wait for, um, I have to wait until I'm like about to defend my, my dissertation. And then I can email Jonathan and say, Oh, I'd really like to be a postdoc with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually let's. <clears throat> Um, if someone, l- l- let me, let me give a, let me give some concrete examples using myself, um, which may or may not be representative. If, if, if someone, the, the most amazing candidate you can imagine in the world wrote to me today and said, dear Jonathan, I would like to be a postdoc with you. I would tell them no. And, and the reason is I don't have any money for a postdoc. Like I literally could not pay them. And so I, I have not posted an ad. Uh, and I also, I, I, there's no mechanism for me to pay them. So I would write back and I would say, I'd love to have you, but I don't have any money. So if you are able to, I will help you apply for a fellowship. And if you can get it, yes, please come. But otherwise you can't come. And, and, and that person may say, okay, great. I'll apply for a fellowship. But guess what? Applying for a postdoctoral fellowship takes time. If you were, mm-hmm. for example, going to apply for an NRSA from, from NIH, um, by the time, you know, there's only a few, um, application cycles per year and you submit it and it gets reviewed, you get the money, you know, it's not like, well, next month I want to start. Can I get the fellowship? It's like, well, you have to plan a year in advance. So, um, and if someone who I didn't know who like maybe wasn't like clearly stellar, um, um, contacted me, like I, I, my first email back to them might not be like, I would love to support your fellowship application. 
I mean, it might be. I'm just saying, like, you you know, you're asking uh, if you're applying for a fellowship, it's also a commitment on the part of the of the mentor to help you write the application and to develop a project. And it's not trivial to do that. And so I think it helps to have some kind of background with a person before you sort of ask them to invest that kind of time in you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say you shouldn't ask. I'm just, you know, the, the point of all this is it's very hard to do last minute. Yep. Now, if someone who is equally stellar uh, contacts me now, and let's say they're a second year graduate student, and they say, well, hey, hey, Jonathan, uh, can I sit in your lab meeting? Or can you, you know, can we have a, a Zoom meeting to talk about research in your lab? I'll, I'll say yes. Uh, and then we do that. And then um, let's say a year and a half from now, I get a grant. Right, that has has money for a postdoc. Well, now the process to um, post that, I have to wait for the money to actually arrive, and then I work with HR and the department business administrator, and I craft an ad, which then gets posted on the you know WashU website. Oh, this is all so boring, right? And then and then applications come in, and I review them, and that process takes months. But I've I've known for six months that I have the money. Right. Mm-hmm. So I also, when I get the email from NIH that's like, you got your grant, I could turn around and email this great candidate and be like, Hey, I know you might be finishing up soon. Have you thought about postdocs? Right. Mm-hmm. Because I want that person to come work with me. And so, um, so it does bias, you know, so the system is biased towards those connections, but I'm already planning my, I have to plan my lab. I have to, the, the money's going to come in. I have to use it. So I'm already thinking about who would be a good fit. And, and, and so, but before, things get posted. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, sorry. I, and let me just say, so like, okay. as I'm explaining that process, uh, I, I, I'm like, well, this is probably not the best way to do things. Right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem entirely fair. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to share it anyway. Cause I think that's the way it works a lot of places. So people should mm-hmm. know that that's how it works. Um, and then, and then there may be, you know, more fair ways of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, so that was that was where my head is going. It's like, what are the more fair ways of doing it? I mean, it seems like the process of having to wait for the money and doing all that boring bureaucracy stuff, like it's really too bad that it takes that long because um, that pushes the incentives toward, you know, using using established connections. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there ways that you could like kind of informally say like, hey, I may be looking for postdocs? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and. Yeah. Well, so this is another funny thing. So I and and so what I've done in the past is um sort of, you know, used Twitter and like our lab blog to sort mm-hmm. of make the announcement before it's official or whatever. Um for whatever for whatever reason, um I've gotten very few like zero or close to zero um applications that way. Um, and actually I, so, so full disclosure, just between me and you, Julia, I've not gotten that many applicants for postdocs with me. I don't know if it's because the timing's bad or, or I'm not, I'm not fancy enough or whatever. Um, but it, it, you know, so again, the funding, you know, I've gotten the money, uh, and then, and then, and sort of advertised and not gotten anyone. And so the, you know, the timing has to be right, both having the money and having the applicants. Um, and so, uh, that all that hasn't always been the case for me, I, but I do think, yes. Yeah, so it's possible to circumvent HR uh, in some, in some respects and try to, you know, let everyone know about the availability, which I think is a good thing to do, but I think also like not everyone does it. Mm-hmm. And, and partly, partly I, I guess speaking for myself, partly it's like, I'm not always as intentional as I could be about it, but partly it's just like you have a million things going on. And, and if it's not already 
if it's not required, it sometimes it just slips through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so there is, there is an element there. I think, I think for many jobs these days, there will still be an element of luck, you know, with timing. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, okay. In, in the days where humans went to large convention centers and all packed together, uh, one of the ways that you meet your future postdoc PI is to run into them at a conference and talk about stuff. Um, what do we do during plague days? Uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned having, you know, like asking people if you could zoom into their lab meetings. Mm-hmm. What are, what are some of the other ways that you can try to like start establishing those connections with people who may go on to become PIs for your postdoc? But even if they don't, will it probably just be, you know, good people to know and connections to have in those kinds of things. What are, what are recommendations for how people can do that? Yeah. Well, let me just expand on the, the joining lab meeting kind of approach. Um, so in, in the old days, uh, uh, when we could, we could travel and see people in person, my advice would be like, Oh, if you have, let's pretend I really wanted to, um, to do a postdoc with you, Julia. Um, Mm -hmm. but I felt awkward about contacting you. I might say something like, Oh, I, I, I ha- dear Julia, I'm going to, you know, by, by chance, I will happen to be in Northfield, Minnesota, uh, next <laughs> month. Could I, could, you know, can we grab a cup of coffee together? Sure. Um, you know, and if you said no, it's fine, but, but people will often say yes, you know, if, oh. if you happen to be in town for some, for some excuse. I don't have to tell you that I would specifically drive to Northfield to, to be in town to see you. I just have to uh, happen to be around. Um, mm-hmm. So, but with Zoom, it makes it easier because you don't even need to like make up an excuse to be in town or like mm-hmm. find places where you happen to be on vacation or whatever. You can just tell people like, I'm interested in your research. You know, would it be okay if, if I sat in on a lab meeting? And mm-hmm. almost everyone is doing Zoom lab meetings these days anyway. And mm-hmm. so like sending you the invite to sit in and they might ask you to introduce yourself for two sentences is a mm-hmm. pretty low bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, if you have research to talk about, many people are very happy to have guest speakers at lab meetings because yep. as someone who organizes lab meetings, you know, every week we try to have a presentation and not everyone signs up for every week. And so we have lots of days where like, it'd be great to have a external person come and talk about science and then we can all talk about it. Like it's really helpful for me, um, mm-hmm. to have that. So, so really it feels like you're imposing on people, I think for many people, mm-hmm. but in fact, I think uh, you're doing a lot of people the favor. So I think it's a very low bar. And if they say, you know what, it's not going to work, who cares? It's not going to work. Um, but if you do sit in, then they know your name. You get a little bit of interaction, which is, which is useful. And it gives you an opportunity to follow up later. So either with the PI, you know, oh, I was really great hearing about that project. Here's some thoughts or here's a relevant paper. Or with like graduate students or postdocs in the lab. So that's the other thing is, um, again, making friends with people who are interested in similar things. Um, it doesn't all have to be PIs, right? So like if, if, um, there are other people who are going to be, um, just useful to know in the field and that's a way to get to know them. And if the PI is looking for a postdoc, guess what? Your name might come up because one of the, one of the grad students might say, Oh, you know, Oh, do you know Jonathan? He's a graduate student and he's like, he's looking for a postdoc. You should think about him. So I, you know, there's multiple levels on which this works. It's not, you know, and again, this is not, I hope this doesn't come across as like, 
you have to be strategic and like every every relationship is because you can get something that's not that's not what i'm saying it's Don't more like schemy. right it's not so much being schemy it's just like making connections because you learn scientifically but also um the the social networks are how a lot of information gets spread including including job availability mm-hmm. so there's so there's emailing to ask about sitting in on zoom sessions um, there's emailing to just say, Hey, I have some questions about something and would love to pick your brain about it. Um, uh, I think if, if, if that even sounds a bit intimidating to start with, you know, sending an email that is something along the lines of, Hey, I read this paper and it was really interesting. And I was wondering about X, Y, Z, or I'm doing a project that is related to this in some way. And I'd like to get your input on it. Um, you know, uh, uh, especially if you were just asking kind of easy, short questions, um, that can be a way to just like start a conversation, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and get on their radar and then maybe lead up to sitting in on lab meetings or, yeah. or things like that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, so name recognition does count for a lot. Uh, I mean, there are just so many people doing research in related fields to me. I just don't know all of them. And so mm-hmm. the ones that I've interacted with even a little bit, whether it's on Twitter or by email or at a conference, um, it really does kind of help the next time we interact to, to, you know, help me remember that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so you don't, so all of which is to say, I think uh, it's fine if your first interaction with someone is, 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 you know, dear Dr. Strand, I'd like to do a postdoc with you. That's okay. You shouldn't hesitate, but it's even better if that isn't your first interaction with the person. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and because maybe you don't know who you should be doing a postdoc with, I think all the more reason to just try to generally be connected within your field um, and get to know people who are doing related work. And, and that will just like naturally help you out when you're applying for postdocs. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's another way to put it is just sort of, even if it's hard for you, like some people are very extroverted and love meeting people um, and other people are not. And so if you already love doing this, this is probably like not going to be a chore for you. But if you don't love doing it, I think um, there are definite benefits and you can just treat it like part of your job, like spend 30 minutes this week trying to get to know people. And and you can decide whether that looks like engaging on Twitter or sending emails or trying to sit in on a lab meeting. You can practice with me. Uh, even if you're not in my field, feel free to, to cold email me and ask if you can sit in on a lab meeting. I can't promise that they're all um, um, fascinating, but you're welcome to try and, and And maybe that will be, you know. Yeah, useful practice for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. What would you say is the role of your mentor in all of this? So let's say, you know, you're a PhD student, you're thinking about postdocs. Is it all up to you to figure this out or how can how can mentors help? Well, that's a great question, Julia. Um, ideally, your, your mentor is also sort of advocating and sending emails to people that they like saying or, or, or who they think would be good for you. You know, saying, uh, you know, John, dear so and so, Jonathan is looking for a postdoc next year. Do you know of anything? Um, it's a little bit challenging because so some people are going to be uh, actually a lot of a lot of people um, are going to end up changing directions in their postdoc. So yeah. I, I could spend my entire PhD studying, you know, um, you know, humans and listening effort. And then for my postdoc, I want to do like mouse gustatory cortex or something. And so like <laughs> my, I know. Uh, so my advisor is not going to be like super helpful because they don't know the people in the field, but, but they could try. 
Um, or I might be embarrassed to tell my advisor that I'm totally changing fields because some advisors are more understanding than others and so on. So, you know, I think I, in a, in a perfect world, they would be super helpful in finding these connections, but in practice, I, maybe it's 50, 50. And I do think, I think it's probably fair to say that most advisors, if you're in like your, if you're not in your fourth or fifth year, like if you're not in the last year of your PhD and you start talking to your advisor about a postdoc, they may give you a look. Like just because, um, I mean, you can tell them that Jonathan and Julia told you uh, to start <laughs> to start exploring this early. But I just think most people don't expect graduate students to really be seriously looking until the end of their mm-hmm. of their PhD, and so um, so you might want to just tread a little bit lightly, depending on your your advisor. But but advisors should be helping you to make connections and to get to know people. And so if you just frame it that way, uh, mm-hmm. that then it'll probably take some of the pressure off. Yeah, sure. In terms of like, um, I feel like I don't know anybody who does this kind of work outside our department. Who are the other people that I should be, you know, keeping an eye out for and looking for ways to connect with? Yeah. And, and, you know, in these days, too, especially with some conferences being canceled and other ones going online, I, I think it's totally fair. Like, so another kind of talking point might be, um, you know, I'm really interested in the work that's doing in your lab. What what conferences are you are you is your lab attending this year? Mm-hmm. You know, um, just as a way to like, you're not even asking for to join their lab meeting, but then they might tell you where you know there might be places you haven't heard of, or even if you've heard of it, if they say, oh, we're we're going to the standard thing that everyone always goes to, but it's online, um, mm-hmm. that's fine. But you you still had an email interaction, and then maybe later on before the conference, you can say, oh, can I? Can I meet you and gather for a for a for a chat or something like? I mean, you know, it just it just kind of opens the door to communication. Um, yeah. Also, like the ev- the evergreen advice is just remember, lots of human beings are socially awkward, and that includes academics, and that includes senior academics. And so, you know, some of the PIs you contact may like be awkward about it, and it like it don't take it personally. They may just be awkward with everyone or maybe awkward in that situation, but, you know, just move on. If it, you know, if it's not working, just move on. Don't take it personally. I think in general, most people that I know are very happy to have these conversations. Um, and if they're, you know, if, if they can't, they'll be nice about it. So just, yeah, don't be scared off if you get a grumpy PI. Mm-hmm. And better to know that they're grumpy before you. Well, right. Would you, would you want to go postdoc with them if, if that's how they're going to, if that's, if your interactions are, are kind of awkward, maybe, maybe you wouldn't. Yeah. An- another thing that is really important to keep in mind is that, you know, as a grad student looking around, trying to figure out, you know, where the, where the next position is going to be and what the future is going to hold and all of that. But it's also important to keep in mind that like from Jonathan's position. So I have not had a, postdoc at Carleton. There are sometimes postdocs at small liberal arts colleges, but it's, it's much more rare. Um, but, you know, from like Jonathan's position, um, uh, what what PIs are looking for when they're looking for postdocs is like people who it's going to be fun to work with and are going to be a research collaborator and are going to work hard and bring new ideas and new enthusiasm to the lab. And like they they want good postdoc candidates. Right. Like like it's not just like it's going to be this huge burden for them to have you join. And it's this major ask like they want you also. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's important to keep in mind that they're also looking for ways 
to find the best candidates who are going to you know bring all that to their lab. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a really good point. So I think I also want to just say a quick, at least a quick word about fit, um, which is sort of one of those words that is like kind of true, but is also frequently a, a proxy, whether it's intended or not, for lots of unconscious bias in hiring decisions. Um, but I'm going to give one concrete example from my lab that I don't think um, that I don't think is 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 uh, reflecting unconscious bias. So, in in the postdoc ads I have posted in the past, I have been specifically looking for someone with brain imaging experience to join my lab and do brain imaging, uh, and that is like that's the job description, and I will get. Um, inquiries from people who have no brain imaging experience who say, well, they'd love to learn. Now, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And I actually commend those people for asking. So that's another part I'll get to in a minute. But in my case, that was not a good fit for what I wanted, uh, which was, I think, clear from the application. And so I didn't, uh, you know, those people did not get the job. Um, but I think that's, so I, on the one hand, I think you should still, um, don't cut yourself out too much, which I'll get to in a minute. But also, if you if someone says, oh, you're not, you know, this isn't going to work, there could be like really clear reasons why they are looking for a specific skill set to kind of to join a project, to add to the lab, to complement what they already have. And just just an encouragement to not take that personally um, if you if you don't get a postdoc. Right. So it could be that you're you're amazing and they're amazing, but the, like it's not a good complementary um, fit of skills either for your training or or for what they need too. So just just to you know, there are um, both people have goals right in this in this kind of hiring process. Now, um, so having said that, I would actually encourage you to apply for lots of jobs even if you don't feel like you fit the description. Uh, and the reason is that um, sometimes the description descriptions you see have been cut and paste from previous ads. Sometimes they've gone through an HR sanitization process. Sometimes there are things that if there are multiple people on a project, um, one person may have more say in how it's phrased than the others, but not necessarily in the hiring and so on and so forth. And so, and so I've definitely seen cases where, um, you know, the, the published job ad does not necessarily line up with the person who's hired again for better or for worse. Um, and, and, as a hiring person, you know, I would like to make that better, but giving you advice as an applicant, I would not count yourself out, right? So let them be the ones to tell you you're not a good fit. Don't like tell yourself you're not a good fit um, within reason, probably, right? Like if, you know, anyway, um, and, and another, you know, consideration for that is sometimes people who are hiring uh, may not get any candidates that fit what they had intended but then look at the people who applied and said, well, but actually, uh, you know, we had wanted someone who does X, Y, and Z and no one does X, Y, and Z, but Julia is amazing. So we're going to like hire her anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. And so again, I don't know for better, or for worse, but that, that does happen. And so if there's someone you want to work with, I would definitely apply. Um, and you, you don't, I would not, um, be dishonest in your application about your strengths and experience. But I think you can also explain if there are ties that you see to the work going on, even if it's not, uh, you know, even if it's not exactly the same or, or whatever is what, what they're advertising. Mm-hmm. 
all right. So how many postdocs should you do? <laughs> Enough. <laughs> I don't, I mean. But not too many. Yeah. So probably four, four is probably more than you need. Uh, zero is probably too few. I mean, a lot of, in the old days, people would do one postdoc, right? Um, I think, I think the modal number of postdocs is one. Uh, I don't know what it is these days. Um, we could look, uh, but I think, I think a better way to think about it is sort of what are your own career goals and what does it take to get there? And uh-huh. so if you feel like you need training in a, in a method that you haven't gotten, maybe, you, maybe you need to do more. If you, if you feel like you have all the training you need, but you are not having success on the job market because you need more papers, you know, maybe you need to do more. Um, on the other hand, you know, don't, don't, uh, undersell yourself and maybe you are, maybe you are ready. So I, that, that's a, I feel like that's a trickier question for me to, for me to give advice on. Cause I think it just depends so much on a specific situation. And getting a more, like getting every postdoc probably means like moving, relocating. So depending on, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a partner, if you have kids, that's, um, that's a challenge. That's a challenge too. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the kind of transient nature of of academia really favors people who can easily just pick up and move and you know just move mm-hmm. to wherever the jobs are um and that that's that's can be that can be really challenging and difficult um mm-hmm. even if you have the means and are able to do it, you know it probably also means like making new friends and mm-hmm. finding a new place to live and all of those things um, yep. and so there's there's definitely a balance there to. Uh, how much it disrupts your life and how much the experience benefits you. Mm-hmm. Well, and also probably as much as you can try to plan ahead of time uh, to a certain extent, you don't know how, it, how a postdoc is going to go until you start it like any job. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it could be, you end up somewhere planning to stay for a year and stay for five, you know, or, or vice versa. You plan on like this, I'm going to stay here for a long time. It's going to be great. And then after six months, you think, actually it's not a great fit. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's worth also being kind of cognizant of that, um, be, being flexible that way too. Yep. So listeners, um, uh, that was a little bit of a, was it a whistle stop tour? What kind of tour was it? It was, it was a little bit of a unscripted tour through, um, some postdoc thoughts. If you have fascinating, fascinating <laughs> is the word you're looking for. Fascinating. Uh, if you have questions or comments, please let us know. I'd be happy to try to address any, um, specific, uh, questions you have or or just hear about your experiences applying for postdocs um and and good luck if you're out Absolutely. if you're out there thinking and, about a postdoc uh you know anyway our thoughts are with you and if you are looking for postdocs studying things that we know about you should feel free to reach out to us and say hey who are the people in this field who you think might be beneficial for me to talk to given the skill set that i have mm-hmm. um because that's also a thing that i think mentors often will do is just point you to the right people. Um, but if your mentor isn't doing that or you need some more guidance, I'm happy to help with that. I, unfortunately, I can only do it for my own area of research. But for those of you who do the same kinds of stuff that we do, happy to help. So there's one other topic that I wanted to uh, briefly mention, which is everything we've talked about um, so far has really been about sort of uh, really focused on like informal, uh, informal job networking kinds of things. But there are, but you know, postdoc jobs do get posted officially, and so it is also worth being um, vigilant about places that post jobs, whether that's a specific lab or a specific institution or mailing lists. So, for example, a lot of times 
um, people will send out postdoc ads to relevant um, societies um, that, that advertise jobs or like, you know, free mailing lists, like the auditory listserv for what Julia and I do. You might see postdoc ads there. So, you know, I think early on when you're not actually applying, it's a little bit less important, although it doesn't hurt to be on the lookout. But if you're actually applying, I would, it just despite all of my advice about like getting to know people, um, I would also be like, you know, hyper vigilant about where jobs are posted and apply to them. Um, yeah. And in fact, that's how I got one of my, one of my postdocs. And so that is, that's a more traditional route um, that I think helps if you have a connection, but that, you know, these are just like regular jobs and you can apply for them. So don't, don't discount that, but just early on, you can kind of start doing this other stuff first. There are also organizations like the National Postdoctoral Association um, that uh, that can ha- that has great resources about things you should be thinking about when you are, you know, in, at this point in your career. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you next time. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.